So a quick poll as we get started this morning by a show of hands. Who enjoys waiting? Okay. And unfortunately, uh, as you guys know, waiting is a part of everyday life. And somebody who has way too much time on their hands, probably waiting, uh, put together some stats that are super interesting. Uh, In the span... Uh, of an average lifetime, so measured over the lifetime of the average person, you will spend five days waiting on your significant other to get ready. For some of you, it's much more than that. You will spend seven days in doctor's waiting rooms. You'll spend two weeks at a red light, or red lights. You'll spend 43 days on hold. You'll spend 125 days in traffic. And you will spend two years of your life in line. Unless you go to the DMV a lot, and then it will be 10 years of your life in line. The great uh, philosopher Dr. Seuss, in one of his best books, Oh, the Places You'll Go, talks about waiting, and he defines it as the waiting place. He says this, the waiting place for people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or the waiting around for a yes or no or waiting for their hair to grow. I can relate. Everyone is just waiting Waiting for the fish to bite, or waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for a Friday night, or waiting perhaps for their Uncle Jake to, for their Uncle Jake, or a pot to boil, or a better break, or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance. Everyone is just waiting. Have you ever waited for a yes or no, or a better break? Or another chance. And sometimes those seasons of waiting can be long and challenging. And the hardest place to wait is when you're in the valley. In the last few weeks, um, in the last few chapters of our journey through the the biblical book of Acts... Uh, the author Luke has turned his focus in on one of the followers of Jesus named Paul as he willingly goes into a city that he knows will lead to hardship. And he's going through the valley. E- even after the Holy Spirit told him directly and through others what awaited him if he would go into Jerusalem, he goes anyway. And he is lied about, he is threatened, he's almost killed by an angry mob, he's unjustly arrested, he's lied about some more, he's nearly whipped to death by the Romans, he's almost assassinated by a plot against his life, and then he's whisked away at night with, with a, a accompaniment of 470 Romans that ultimately take him to the governor to determine his fate, all in the matter of just a few days. And this is where we're going to pick up the narrative this morning. 
And Paul's been brought before the governor, the Roman governor of this region of Judea named Felix. And let me just tell you a little bit about Felix before we get into the line. Felix was known to be a corrupt and a cruel governor. He was a horrible ruler. In fact, he was so bad that he only reigned or he only uh, served as governor of Judea for just a few uh, short years, and he was hated by the people that he oversaw. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 24 this morning, one page, page 138 of your Acts journals. If you are new with us and don't have an Acts journal, you're welcome to grab one. There's still a few in the seats uh, uh, in front of you, uh, underneath the seat in front of you. You're welcome to have that and take that. So here we go. Acts 24 verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman. So, these, so remember, Paul's at Caesarea, and, uh, and this group comes down after these five days. And one Tertullus, they laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since... By your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. But to detain you no further. Oh, I'm sorry. For we have found this man a plague. So he just jumps right in after, you know, kind of like greasing the skids with uh, Felix. For we have found this man a plague, talking about Paul, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming these things were so. Paul waits for five days, not knowing what his fate is, not knowing when he's going to be brought before the governor, five days. Days. Can you imagine what that five-day time period would be like for Paul? And then he's finally summoned to the governor for trial. And this, the Jewish leaders have hired this lawyer named Tertullus, which is just a hilarious name, to represent them, and he tries to do his best to butter up the governor. He's a horrible leader. They hate him. And yet, he uses all these flower languages to try to bend his ear, and then he tries to cast Paul in the worst possible light. And with these three charges, he stirred up riots, he's this ringleader for this weird sect of the Nazarenes, which was not a compliment. The the Nazareth area was not considered a very highly regarded area, it was kind of considered the armpit of Judea. So it was not a compliment. And he profaned the temple, all of which are lies. So this is what we see 
the first, my first encouragement to you today. When you are in the waiting place, listen to God's voice. Who, who do you listen to when you're waiting? Because there are a lot of voices that compete for your attention. And, and sometimes, in fact, I think most of the time, we're in the waiting place, the voice that we listen to the most is the voice inside our, hell, our heads. And, and sometimes that voice will tend to replay those negative things that we've heard about ourselves. The things that have been said to us or about us. Things like, you're just like your... You'll never amount to anything. You're a loser. You're a burden. You're such a disappointment. And sometimes that voice will sound a lot like your own voice about how you really think and feel about yourself sometimes. You'll never really matter. You don't measure up. You're too fill in the blank. Or your blank is too blank. No one will miss you. And no one really cares. And we can pay attention to the lies that we replay in our mind over and over again. And sometimes the voices that we listen to are our friends. I think one of the best examples of this is found in the Old Testament book of Job. And if you're not familiar with the Old Testament book of Job, Job is this really righteous guy that, that follows everything that God wants him to do. And, and, and in the course of a day, he loses his entire wealth, which was basically his livestock. All of his servants are, are either killed or captured. His children are all killed. And then just a few days later, he breaks out in head-to-toe rash, boils, whatever, that are so irritating and painful that he, has, he uses broken pottery to find relief for himself. And he finds himself sitting in ashes, and his wife just tells him, why don't you just curse God and die? And then he has these three friends that come, and they do one thing right. They sit with Job in his misery for a while. And then they do something really horribly wrong. They open their mouths. And the book of Job is basically the conversation that these three friends have with Job, basically saying, Job, you must have done something wrong to make this happen. And sometimes that's the voice that we can hear in others when we're in that waiting place. It's so easy for us to listen to the lies, but the beauty and truth of the message of the gospel is that you are more loved than you often realize. We are loved by the one who knows us best, knows everything about us, and loves us most, just as we are. In our weakness and in our sin, and the beauty of it is he loves us too much to leave us in that. And because of what he has done for us through Jesus... It's his voice that we should pay the most attention to. He is the one that we should listen to. Hear his voice in these scriptures. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. 
When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Ephesians 1.5 God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.10 for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did you catch that? We've been handcrafted by God for His purpose. 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. You see, God is brought us from death to life. He's adopted us into His family and called us His children. And we've been handcrafted by Him and given a purpose for His good will and His perfect plan. Why would we listen to anyone else? And this is not because we are good or because we are worthy or somehow deserving of this. It's because of who God is. God is Love. And these are the things that we need to remember, and these, this is the voice that we need to listen to when we're in the waiting place. Now, Paul will get the chance to defend himself, and we're going to see him defend himself against all three of these charges in this next passage. Verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully will make my defense. So contrast Paul's introduction to Felix to Tertullus's. Basically what Paul is saying is, hey, you're in charge. <laughs> Nothing more. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they are now bringing up against me. The first defense is, I've only been around for 12 days. How in the world could I like, rally a riot in 12 days? It just didn't happen. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, and the way is the way that they, they would refer to this group, this early group of Jesus followers, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and men. His second defense about him being this ringleader of the sect is, hey, I, I align with a lot of things that these guys align with, like the promises of God, the resurrection from the dead, I align with those things. And then he goes on. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. And we talked about this a few weeks ago that one of the things that Paul did before he came back to Jerusalem is he went to all of the different churches through Macedonia and Greece and he collected this large sum of money that he brought back to help the, the poor in the church of Jerusalem. And while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, and I love this, 
But some Jews from Asia, and then he kind of pauses, like, oh wait, they, they ought to be here before you, and to make an accusation, should, the, should they have anything against me? Which is his third defense against this idea that he was profaning the temple. Like for that kind of charge, there would, have need be, there would have had to be at least two witnesses against him, and they don't have any witnesses against him for this. He's like, there's nobody to, that can attest to that here. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council other than this one thing. I cried out while I was among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Which is exactly what he said. He was brought before the Jewish council. He just said, hey, I, I believe in the resurrection. That was the only thing they could testify to. And then he just kind of like drops the mic and sits down. Verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, in other words, Felix was aware of what, a, a basic understanding of what this movement of Jesus' followers was, put them off, put these Jewish leaders off. When Lasilius, the tribute comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. So even though Paul makes his case in front of the governor and should have been released, Felix decides, nope, I'm going to keep you around a little longer. And there was really no reason for the tribune to come back and to testify because he already had the letter from the tribune that described exactly what happened in Jerusalem. He just decides to keep Paul around. Paul has to wait some more. But, but even in Paul's waiting, we see that God is in control and Paul's needs are met. And this could only be the work of God because we know how, from the reputation of historians, how cruel and how corrupt Felix was. This was out of character for him. So when you're in the waiting place, know you're not alone. The, the waiting place can be extremely lonely. We need to know that God is with us. I love this psalm that David writes that talks about God's presence in our lives. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 12, it says this, Where, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is another, another kind of concept of, of in the earth, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. And this is not talking about the like, night of night. It's talking about the times of like, deep despair and depression. Even the, in the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for the darkness is as light with you. God isn't just with Paul, but he also makes sure that his community is with Paul as well. He's able to have his friends, his colleagues, and come and visit and spend time and encourage him while he's in this prison we need to stay connected to community when we're in the waiting place. 
I, I see this happen over and over and over again. And I'll confess my own participation in this as well. But our tendency is when we're in the waiting place is to isolate. We do. We kind of withdraw into ourselves. We don't want to be around people. We want to be alone. And we'll put up walls and we'll make excuses and there are all kinds of reasons why we don't want to engage with people. But that's the worst thing that we can do. We're in that plating place is we need community. We need others in our lives, especially ones that will speak truth and life into us and the truth of the message of the gospel into us. We need to be surrounded by those who will encourage and support us when we're in the waiting place. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, Jewess, and, and she was more than just a Jewish, Jewess, Drusilla was actually um, of the house of Herod, the king. Um, her great-grandfather was the one that when Jesus was born and the wise men came to visit and then they kind of escaped at night, he ordered all of, the, all of the males under the age of two to be slaughtered in Bethlehem. Like, that's her lineage. And it was her father that made the decision to kill James, the brother of John, with the sword in Jerusalem. Like, that's her heritage. So she's very, her family is very entwined and familiar with this movement of Jesus' followers. And he sent, this is, this is Felix, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control in the coming judgment, Felix was, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. Again, this is who Felix is. He's looking for an angle. He's looking for a little bit of kickback, a little bit of bribery. And, and so he sent for him often and conversed with him. So this wasn't just a one time, like Paul continued to connect with Felix over this time. And then we find out how long this was. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years. Let that soak in for a little bit. Two years of Paul in prison, not, still not knowing what his fate is. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, five days, that's like nothing now, like two years. And I'm guessing that every time that he's sitting there in prison, that every time he hears maybe the guards go by the place he's being held, he's wondering, is this my time? Like two years in the waiting place. I mean, what does Paul do while he's in this waiting place, he remembers and reflects on what Jesus has done for him. Because when you're in the waiting place, we need to remember what God has done for you. It's so easy when you're in a long waiting place to lose perspective. Many times you can begin to all you can see, all you can focus on are your circumstances that you find yourself in. Or all you can see or focus on is the, is the resolution to whatever you are 
hoping or waiting will happen. And, and because of this, it's easy for us to misplace our hope on getting out of the waiting place. Did you catch the three things that Paul was sharing with Felix and Drusilla? He was sharing about righteousness. He was sharing about self-control. And he was sharing about the coming judgment. And I think this kind of reveals what Paul himself was reflecting on. And my guess is when Felix would come around, Paul would continue to share with him these three things. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment. And my guess is this is what Paul would continue to reflect on and remember over this two-year period because each of these things begins to help us get the right perspective when we're in the waiting place. Let me talk about each one of those briefly. Righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is the idea of being made right with God. Because sin separated us from God. It made it impossible for us to have a relationship with God. And so what Jesus did for us on the cross through His sacrifice was He paid the price for our sin and He created this opportunity opportunity for us to be reconciled to God, to have a relation, a restored relationship with Him. And this is amazing. This opportunity is amazing. And He just offers this to us freely that all we have to do is accept that Jesus is who He said He he is and that He did for us what He said He did. It's the most important decision that you can make. It changes everything. And it doesn't change it in such a way, way that life gets easier. In fact, I would argue sometimes that life gets harder because you make this decision. But the promise that God is with us, that we have this relationship with God now, And it doesn't matter what we face in life. We know that He's always with us. Even in the darkest times. The second thing is more interesting. Self-control. Like, why self-control? It's so intriguing that of all the things that Paul could have shared with them, self-control was one of those things that he shared. And what we know about self-control is we see in Scripture that, that one of the evidences is that, that Paul refers to as a fruit, but one of the evidences of the work of the Holy Spirit in our life is self-control. What does this mean? What does this look like in our lives? And I think for us to understand self-control, we need to know that this isn't just simply willpower. Because a lot of people equate self-control and willpower. It's not willpower. But to understand what self-control is, it's really important for us to understand what sin has done to us. Because at its core, what sin did to us is it twisted our desire. And it took our desire that was originally, before sin entered into the world, our desire was strictly for God, for all of the things of God, and it twisted it and put it on ourselves. And it made us always desire what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. And what self-control does is it redirects that desire back to God. And what He wants for us. Actually, self-control, I think, is a little bit of a misnomer. It really should be spirit control. Because He is the one who is realigning our desires. And when we are in the waiting place, it's easy for us to give into desires that satisfy and please us. We tend to seek things that dull the pain or distract us. But the work of the Spirit of the Spirit of God in us is to continually redirect those desires 
away from what strictly satisfies us or numbs us or distracts us, and it recenters that to put our focus back on God. That's what self-control is. And then judgment. And judgment is all about where our hope lies. We, we know that because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that He conquered death. And we are no longer have to live in fear of death. That there is life, there's eternal life after this one. And, and for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we know that we get to spend eternity in the presence of the one who loves us most. And that there's nothing, nothing that can separate us from him. And when you are in the waiting place, reflecting on this promise and hope of life spent forever with God, it changes your perspective. And what you are waiting for starts to seem small and maybe even a little trivial compared to what eternity with God looks like. Every one of us has spent time, will spend time in the waiting place. Sometimes the waiting place can be a long time. And maybe that's where you are this morning. You find yourself in the waiting place. And if that is you, make sure that you're listening to His voice. Knowing that He loves you and that you are His child. N know that He is always with you. That you are never alone. And fight that urge. Fight that urge to isolate. To want to be alone. Stay connected to a community, a group of people, a person who will continue to encourage you and to remind you who you are. But lastly, just remember what God's done for you and what ultimately awaits you. This time that you are in now will seem like a blip compared to the eternity that waits for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the fact that you are the God of the waiting place. Thank you for the fact that you are the one who knows us, who loves us, who cares, and, and who is with us, promises to be with us when we go through these times of waiting. Father, help us keep our focus and our attention and our ear to you and continue to remind us, Father, of what you have done for us through Jesus and the hope that lies ahead. You are good and your ways are true. And it's in Jesus' name I ask these things. Amen.